you didn't know that song, read them over again to me. Beautiful words of life. I love that. Thank you, Elisa. Well, I want you to know this was a rough week. Um, I've um, agonized over this sermon, so it was more difficult than I anticipated. But I will, I'm going to pray that God takes what I've got for you and turns it into what he's got for you. Well, let's pray. Lord God, bless the words in my mouth and the meditations in my heart that they will be acceptable in your sight and that they will be words that are from you, God, and that you direct. Bless our time together that we will more fully understand your love and provision for us. Amen. I'm going to step back and read the last part of this chapter, but I'll, I'll intersect a little bit, so what you're going to see on the screen, I'll be there in just a couple of verses. I'm going to start with verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined, determined <laughs> to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. This story is beautiful in its simplicity. The writer masterfully structures this book with just enough details. He wastes no words. Every word lends purpose and, and it is important to the story. Every word he's placed in here has a reason. It is a simple story. Yet it also has depth of meaning far beneath the surface of that story. It demonstrates God's provision and care for one family, but also for his entire people. We see the lineage of a human dynasty 
which in fact is a big portion of why this book was written. But we also see an eternal kingdom. God's forgiveness, redemption, and restoration of all people is foreshadowed in one small family unit. But if we really want to understand this book, it has to be placed in the time of the judges. I thought about pointing out the last story in Judges with just precedes this. I'll leave you to read that. It's horrific. And we catch this context in the very first birth, the first verse. This verse says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Ruth was likely written by the prophet Samuel and follows the book of Judges, likely after David was anointed king. And believe me when he says, when the days when the judges ruled, the people are probably not looking back that with fondness and nostalgia. But we also need to see another context. This small story is one in the big story. It is the big story of God working in the world. The story of God's chosen people begins when God makes a promise to Abraham. Way back there in Genesis 12, he says, I am going to bless you, and through your offspring, I will bless the entire world. Abraham, you are blessed in order to be a blessing. Then you know the story, I think. Abraham's grandson Jacob has 12 sons, and their children become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were supposed to be the physical example of God's love and peace on earth. But wait, they weren't. Things don't work out that way. Even his sons, they don't work out that way. Instead, we come a little further down, and they chose to follow the idol's of the Canaanite people. They turned away from God and they even turned on each other. Just in case you think we have the answer, we don't. Every generation progressively got worse and spiraled down. As you read the book of Judges, it shows this spiral to almost complete degradation. The last line of Judges summarizes this chaos of the time period. This is from the message. In those days in Israel, they had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Other translations said, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's my truth. It's a world out of control. But in the middle of all of this sin and evil, We have the story of Ruth. As we begin Advent, hear this story as a glimpse of light and hope in the middle of a dark, dark and evil world. So first of all, I see two lands. There's a land of promise, and there's a land of compromise. Naomi, remember, she was a Jewish woman. She was married to Elimelech. They lived in Bethlehem with their two sons. They must have had some 
prosperity. They owned property. And, and they were living there. In fact, Bethlehem is another glimpse of hope because the very name means house of bread. And the, the name Ephrata, because it was from the area of Ephrata, means fruitful. Bethlehem Ephrata, house of fruitful bread, the house of fruitfulness. It also had a connection to a future king. In Micah 5.2, there's a prophecy that says, out of you will come one who will be ruler of Israel whose origins are from old, even from ancient times. Don't you wonder what the people of Israel did with that one? Origins from of old? So there's a famine. This is an agrarian society. They must store up food, and the famine puts them up against the edge of starvation and poverty. It, in fact, forces them to leave the land of promise, or at least in their eyes it forced them, and they went to a foreign country called Moab. They put themselves in a position of compromise to their faith, and they even went to a land where the people did not know or worship God. They were there for 10 years. Her sons married Moabite women in direct contradiction to the stated will of God. But then her husband dies, and her sons get sick and die. And even worse, they died before they could father any children. That's even worse than them dying in this culture. It's hard for us to imagine, but please try to imagine Naomi's shame and destitution. She's without a husband. She's without anyone to carry on her family line. And her loss could even be viewed by others as God's judgment on her and on her family for leaving the land of promise and breaking God's law by marrying foreign women. That's rough. And now we see two people. One of honest hurt and one person who is filled with humble devotion. Try to understand her position. In those days, if a woman had no husband and no sons, it literally meant she was nothing. She not only had nothing, she was, all, she was really nothing. So she returns home 10 years later. She's destitute. She's broken. And she stumbles into Bethlehem. Did you notice in the passage that only the women said something? I don't know why. I'm sure the author put that in there for some reason. But the men didn't comment, apparently. But the women did. And they say, wait, Naomi? Is that you? But look at her response. Don't call me that. Naomi means pleasant. I am anything but pleasant. 
God has turned his back on me. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Now, you don't just come up with that and uh, the first time somebody says something to you, you've thought about this. She has dwelt on her bitterness. She has dwelt on what God has done to her. She has a root of bitterness. Now, before we're too hard on Naomi, we've all had that root of bitterness. Why did you do this to me, God? She's hurting from God's heavy hand. Seems she has no hope. And I go back to you don't come up with Mara if you haven't already meditated on that for some time. As contrast, now we meet Ruth. You get a glimpse into her character by knowing that her name, her very name, means friendship. She's a Moabite, not a Jew. Who were the Moabites? Well, this gets better. You can't imagine a less likely people to be inserted into this story. Well, maybe you can. But these are, this is pretty rough. Do you remember in Genesis the story of Lot and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot left that destruction. His wife turns into a pillar of salt. He flees to the mountains with only his two daughters. This little family um, turns out a little differently. The three of them are hiding out in a cave. The girls are clear that they won't ever be able to get pregnant and have husbands, so they get their father drunk, force him to have sex with them, and get pregnant. One of the children of that union is Moab. As a result, and for other reasons, the Moabites were despised by the Jewish people. And yet, there's this one young woman. She's Ruth. She's a Moabitess and a widow. And her mother wants her mother-in-law wants to leave Moab. That's Ruth's home. And she wants to go back to Bethlehem. So now I see two responses. There's one choosing safety, and there's another of devotion. Naomi looks at her two daughters-in-law, and she gives them some pretty sound advice, right? Why would you want to follow a poor old woman to a foreign country you've never known? Go home, start over, get a husband, settle down, raise kids. You belong back in Moab. Start over while you're still young. Orpah, she says, after much tears, she agrees and returns home. Don't be too harsh on Orpah. She took the safe choice. It's okay. She could go back with her people. She probably went into her father's home and found another husband. It's a lot safer choice than the unknown land and a destitute mother-in-law. But the first glimpse of hope is Ruth. She looks at Naomi and says in verse 16 and 17, don't press me to leave you or to even turn back from following you. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to stay in your house. I'm going to have your people as my people. Your God will be my God. 
where you die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to stay there after you die. I'm going to be buried there. And then she makes an oath to the Lord. May the Lord do this to me, and much more as well, if even death parts me from you. In effect, she says, Naomi, I am completely committed to you. She's committed to the land, the people, and to God. That oath that she makes to God, she even invokes the name of Yahweh in that oath of loyalty. Wow. This is the first place in Ruth where we find a special kind of love. You're going to hear this word over the next few weeks of Advent. So I'll teach you a a Hebrew word today. It is hesed. And it is used to describe God's love. As in verse 8 of this passage, Naomi says, May the Lord show you, we translate as kindness, but it is really hesed. Hesed love is used as a covenant term showing the relationship between God and his people. It depicts God's loving, merciful, gracious, kind, good, and benevolent ways. It is much deeper than even love or kindness. As Naomi asks her daughter-in-laws to go home, she's using that petition to God to show love to them. But this word hesed is often shown also to other people and in every, every chapter, but the last one, this, the last chapter, this word is used. So it's very important. You remember the fact that the author of Ruth, I don't believe, drops any unnecessary words. This one's important. Ruth demonstrates this hesed in her devotion to Naomi. She devotes her life in service to her mother-in-law. She doesn't even mention a second marriage. What a picture of God's gift to the world. His work is best exemplified not in the chosen people of Israel, but in the most unlikely person from a foreign country, such as Ruth. God has dropped these hints before of how he's going to use the Gentiles, how he's going to use those, and he's going to reach those who are not part of his chosen people. It happened in the story of Joshua when God worked through the prostitute, Rahab from Jericho. Now God works through a faithful widow from Moab. Ironically, both of these foreign women with checkered pass are the ones who are in the line of generations that stretch to Christ. Now I see two areas of need. A near-term need and a long-term need. They need food. And they need a family. Our second glimpse of hope comes right at the end of chapter 1. They came to Bethlehem at the time of barley harvest. It is really difficult for us to picture this. We are not tied to the land as they are. This is like payday. It's not just payday. It's the big payday of the year. 
It's when your crops are gathered in and you know you're secure. It's harvest time. The waiting of the long, hot summer is over and something good's going to happen. Why do you think later in the book, uh, Boaz has gotten a little happy? He's had some wine. He's relaxed because it's done. They're secure for the winter. Naomi and Ruth come back and they need the basics of life. They need food, but they also need a family. Naomi and Ruth are both widows. They have nothing. They are vulnerable and without protection. Life could easily tip the scales towards destitution and worse. But God has provision for them. It's the time of harvesting of grain, the time of plenty and provision. Barley will be the means God uses to bring them not only food, but family and redemption. But do you notice how in, in my life, I hope in yours, God doesn't show me the whole story. Ruth and Naomi don't know the whole story at this point. All they know is there's a chance they'll have food because it is the time of harvest. God's provision of temporary sustenance ultimately brings more permanent provision of a home, family, and descendants. And we look further down the long arc of history, God provides even more. An eternal home, his forgiveness and peace with God through a descendant of Ruth's. My theme so far has been two. Now it's one. There's one promise for God's people. Even though nations had turned after God to chase idols and power and self-indulgence, God's promise can be found in the most unlikely places, the most unlikely people. Ruth commits herself to Naomi. And in that same way, God is committed to the promises he's made. We discover that in the story of Ruth, that the true faithfulness of God is a commitment that we make as well to the other person made solely for them and not for ourselves. That's the commitment God made to us. When Jesus died on the cross, that was God saying to us, I'm all in. I'm all in for you. I am here with you. Just like Ruth said, I will never leave you. God said, I'm going to be here with you. I'll be with your people. I'll be in your land. I will be one of you. I won't view you from above, and you'll never understand me, and I won't understand you. I will be Emmanuel to you. God with us. Ruth's story also reminds me that God is never passive. No matter what it looks like, he's always moving through our lives and in the world. God is on the move. 
God begins to move in this story. He's going to step into sorrow and tragedy. He's going to turn into surprising triumph and love. Bear with me a moment as I step into Narnia. C.S. Lewis depicted this glimpse of hope in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you know that story, the witch has held the kingdom of Narnia in her evil grip for so long. And their first glimpse of hope is that the snow begins to melt. Later in the story, C.S. Lewis describes this glimpse of hope by showing that Aslan, who is a picture of Jesus, is beginning to move in Narnia even while it remains in deep slavery to the white witch. I will quote the beaver. The beaver said, they say Aslan's on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment the beaver spoke these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has something, sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something you don't understand, but in the dream, it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life. You're always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund, who, by the way, had already met the White Witch, felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. God is beginning to move like that in the life of Naomi and Ruth. He is also moving, my friends, in the story of redemption. Through Ruth and her descendants will come the one who will free us from slavery to sin and death. Maybe you don't feel like that today. Maybe God feels far from you. God can feel far from you when we're surrounded by famine or destitution or everything seems foreign. When death strikes or despair sinks in, sometimes amid barrenness or loneliness, in the middle of grief and shame. His promise is that he is faithful to us. His grace covers all of your sin. His mercy and his hesed will overcome even the depths and the deepest depths of our sorrow. I'm going to close with a poem. You've heard the first line. You'll recognize it immediately. It was written by a man by the name of William Cowper in 1744. He summarized 
this hope and God's unending sovereign grace on our behalf. By the way, he wrote a lot of hymns too. Listen to these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage takes. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, in his work in vain, God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. My friends, God is working in mysterious ways. He is working in this time of Advent that we remember. We remember a plan that only God could interpret. And only he will make it plain. And that truth is alive in your life today and in our world. God is working for his ultimate plan. Let's pray. God, we can see back through your great story and we can see you working. But God, sometimes it is difficult for us to see you're working today in your kingdom. We see the darkness more than the light. We see despair instead of hope. Oh, God, remind us today and every day that you are on the move and that you are working all things according to your sovereign will. 